If you have a Bible, would you open up to Revelation chapter 2? I'm going to be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. A letter that is written to the courageous and yet compromised church in Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In his preface to the Screwtape Letters, which is an imagined correspondence between a senior demon named Wormwood and a junior demon named, or rather a senior demon named Screwtape and a junior demon named Wormwood regarding the various weapons at his disposal with which he may deceive his patient into everlasting damnation, the great C.S. Lewis wrote this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and heal, or hail rather a materialist, that is one who disbelieves in their existence, and a magician who is excessively interested in them. They hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. And there are, I suppose, brands of Christianity out there where the second error, that of feeling the excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil and in the demonic predominate. I recall hearing a story from John MacArthur who ministers in Southern California, which is a seedbed of charismatic Pentecostalism. I heard him once speak of a group of young adults who found their way to his church one Sunday. And when he asked them about their reason for visiting, they responded that they were coming seeking refuge because they were coming from a church where a weak theology and an unhealthy infatuation with the demonic caused them to live in a constant state of fear that they were but helpless pawns in the hands of the devil. And they came to Grace Community Church because they were longing to hear of a God who was sovereign and of a Christ who was victorious over the powers of evil, a Christ who had triumphed over death and hell, a Christ in whom they could finally find safe 
safety and refuge and rest for their souls. So there are churches out there that fall into the second error. But I think our church in particular and our denomination and our theological tradition in general is far more susceptible to the first error. That of disbelieving in the existence of the demonic powers and the reality of the kingdom of darkness. Now, not formally, of course, because we would never deny outright what the Bible so clearly teaches, but functionally, we tend to live as materialists when it comes to the work of the devil, rarely ever pausing to give a second thought to why I feel so depressed, or why I feel so anxious, or why I feel so guilty, or so accused, or so shamed, or so tempted, which, according to Lewis, is precisely the way that the enemy wants it. He would much rather remain to us an anonymous evil to be ignored than a known evil to be feared. But you cannot read the Bible and submit to its infallible authority and deny the pervasive Influence the pervasive threat which Satan and his demonic hordes pose to the souls of men. Peter instructed the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 be sober minded, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What Peter says there in, matter, in a matter of just a few verses is that you, you, Have an adversary, you have an enemy who is the devil, and that enemy is actively seeking the destruction of your soul. He is prowling around like a roaring lion on the outskirts of a sheepfold, looking for a weak sheep to devour. He is seeking to devour your soul, to dismantle your faith, to discredit your witness, to destroy your hope, and to drag you into hell and everlasting damnation. That is the reality of the situation that faces every one of us, whether we are aware of it or not. So you can mark this kind of speech up to those crazy Pentecostals who are always looking for a devil under every rock. But I would just have you to deal with what Peter says there in 1 Peter 5 and ask whether it be not true of you. One of Satan's primary weapons, says Peter, is suffering. Which Peter says is common to believers the world over. 
But, he says, if you resist him in faith and refuse in the midst of that suffering to give in to that unbelief which denies the great promise of Romans 8.28 that God causes all things, even sufferings, to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, to those whom, according to Peter, he has called into his eternal glory in Christ. If we refuse To give in, if we resist the devil who is afflicting us with these sufferings and we stand firm in faith, then the God who has called us into his eternal glory in Christ will himself, Peter says, restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. That is, he will vindicate our faith in the sight of all creation in the day of Christ Jesus. So there are cosmic things at stake in your suffering. And there is an enemy of your soul who is very real and who is very involved in your life. And the book of Revelation simply confirms those words. In Revelation, what God has done is to pull back the veil that blinds us to the spiritual realm. And he has revealed by means of visions and symbols and images that The devil has declared war upon the saints of God. For instance, in Revelation chapter 12, John sees a vision of a dragon whom he identifies as Satan. And the dragon is trying to destroy the woman who is the people of God, the church. But just as Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against her, so the dragon it says, is unsuccessful in in its attempt to sweep away the church in the flood of his malice. Revelation 12, 15 and 16. But this only makes the dragon all the more angry. And so 12, 17 says that the dragon became furious with the woman, that's you, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that's you as well. And on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The devil is at war with the saints of God. And the book of Revelation makes clear that some he violently persecutes, puts them to death. Some he deceives with heresies and false doctrines. Some, he lures away with promises of wealth and prosperity and all the pleasures that this world has to offer. But the elect of God whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will endure in faith, Revelation 13.8. In other words, as Peter said, they will be rescued and vindicated at the coming of Christ. We live in the last days. Did did you know that? You should by now. We've been at this revelation thing for a while. We live in the days of tribulation. The last days between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. We live in the days of war. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking an opportunity to devour you. Some of you he will seek to lure away with empty promises of prosperity and pleasure. 
Others of you he will seek to destroy by taking away from you everything you love and everything that you hold dear like he did to Job. Trying to get you to curse God to his face. Who, who knows what weapons Satan will use to wage war against your soul? And I don't say this to incite you to fear, but rather to call you to fight. To press on in faith. Knowing who your enemy is and believing that God is faithful and that his promise is true and that his grace is, that, is sufficient and that his son is victorious and that his reward for the faithful far outweighs the momentary afflictions that beset you. This is the purpose of this message and it's the purpose of this book It is to awaken you to the reality of war, to rouse you to the battle, and to equip you to fight the good fight of faith, enduring to the very end, resisting the devil and standing firm in the faith in order that you may receive the promised reward together with all who overcome in these days of tribulation. And herein lies the tremendous value of these seven letters. To the seven churches of Asia Minor because they provide us with glimpses of seven real churches filled with real people who are facing real tribulation in these last days. In other words, churches not so different from us. Some of them are enduring the tribulation more faithfully, some are enduring less faithfully, and some are not enduring at all. And one of the prominent features of these seven letters is that Jesus reveals Satan to be the power behind the tribulations that they're suffering. Just look with me at a couple of examples. Chapter 2 and verse 10. Jesus says that the devil was about to throw some of the saints in Smyrna into prison and some of them would die for their faith. Who's going to do that? Satan will. Chapter 2 and verse 24, the false teacher of Thyatira, the woman Jezebel, was spreading in the church what Jesus refers to as the deep things of Satan. The Jews of Smyrna, chapter 2 and verse 9, and the Jews of Philadelphia, chapter 3 and verse 9, those who were slandering the church and were inciting persecution and opposition against the saints of God, Jesus refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. And in today's passage, the letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. In other words, it's impossible to read these letters and not see the devil prowling around these churches like a roaring lion seeking a weak spot in the defenses of the church and looking for a sheep that it may snatch in his jaws and drag away to destruction. Be alert, Peter says. Be watchful, be sober, be vigilant. And that's what you ought to get out of this text. Because he's prowling around us as well. Now, as with each of the seven letters, this one begins with an address to the angel of the church, 
followed by a description of Jesus that is drawn from the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. So we read in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Alright, so new city, new place, new name. The city of Pergamum was located about 40 miles north of Smyrna. So we're going in this rough geographic circle through western Asia Minor. It was about 10 miles inland now. So we've been traveling up the coast and now we're heading, heading eastward from the Aegean Sea. The name of the city means citadel or fortress in Greek. And it was so named because the city was situated on a hill that rose 1,000 feet above the surrounding valley. And on the very upper terrace of the city, there was an abundance of pagan temples, the most prominent of which was an enormous altar dedicated to Zeus. It was a structure that rose 800 feet above the city, just dominated the entire valley. In addition, Pergamum was the center for the worship of Athene and Dionysus and Asclepius, whose symbol you will recognize from the medical profession is that serpent that's curled around the staff. In addition, Pergamum was the official seat of the imperial cult in Asia. It was the first city in Asia to receive permission to construct a shrine to a living emperor. The shrine of Caesar Augustus was constructed there in 29 B.C. So what you need to know is that the city of Pergamum was a city full of idols. This intensely pagan environment is the reason why Jesus refers to Pergamum as the place where Satan has his throne and the place where he dwells. Jesus identifies himself to the church in Pergamum as him who has the sharp two-edged sword which is coming out of his mouth, we find out in, later on in chapter 2 and from the vision in chapter 1. It's drawn from Revelation 1.16 where John describes the Son of Man as having this sword proceeding out of his mouth, an image that represents authority and power which Christ possesses to judge by the word of his mouth, which is precisely what he threatens to do later on in verse 16 to those who will not repent. Therefore repent, he says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, all authority has been handed over to the Son. That's what Jesus says in John 5, 22. All judgment belongs to him. With a word, he can condemn. And with a word, he can justify. With a word, he can kill. And with a word, he can make alive. Jesus is reminding the church in Pergamum that though the Roman officials who rule the city may possess the power of the sword and with it the power of judgment, the power to put them to death if they refuse their edicts and refuse to bow the knee before the image and to worship the beast, even though the Roman officials may possess the temporal sword, Jesus is reminding them of whom they truly ought to fear. The sword that they ought to fear is that which proceeds from the mouth of Christ. For he alone possesses the authority of everlasting judgment. He's reminding the church of Pergamum of the same truth that he spoke to his disciples in Matthew chapter chapter 10 and verse 28 when he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He said to them, do not fear 
those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Like the Roman officials in Pergamum. Yeah, they can put you to death. They have this temporal authority of the state, and they can execute you if you don't do all that they say. But let me tell you who you ought to fear, Jesus says. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's hard words for a persecuted church, but they are words that we need to hear. It is far better to be slain by the sword of man than to fall beneath the sword which proceeds from the mouth of the Son of God. Well, following the familiar pattern set forth in each of the seven letters, Jesus next commends the church for their courageous confession of his name, even in the midst of very difficult and trying circumstances. So verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. All right, we're going to take this verse and just dwell on it for a moment. I want to draw out of it some important truths. Number one, I want you to notice that Jesus views the idolatry of Pergamum not not as a cultural convention or, or, or just an invention of primitive peoples, which is the way that sometimes we sophisticated Westerners view idolatry. He views it as the worship of the devil. He views it as demonic. This is why he refers to Pergamum as the location of Satan's throne. And that place where Satan dwells. Which does not mean that Pergamum was like Satan's capital city. As if he were more present and more active there than he was in other places like say Rome. Rather the connection is to the idolatry that permeated every facet of Pergamum society. As I mentioned earlier, the altar of Zeus dominated the city and it was set it up you can you can google it and look at the images and see it reconstructed it was it was set up like a throne an enormous throne that sat and and ruled over the city and all of the surrounding valley now why would that be important well Zeus was the chief of the gods wasn't he the ruler of this world And it's not difficult to see then the connection between the worship of Zeus and the worship of Satan, whom the Bible refers to as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, the ruler of this world, John 12.31, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. There is a power behind these idols. And Satan is using these idols to enslave mankind. Well, Pergamon was also the center for the cult of Asclepius, which as I mentioned earlier, his image was the serpent. And and these little talisman, these little serpents, these images could be seen everywhere in the city. Does that remind you of someone? Or perhaps it was the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar as Lord and God. But whatever the precise 
referent, Jesus' point is clear. Idolatry is not innocuous, it is demonic. The worship of idols is indirectly the worship of demons, and it is a means by which Satan exercises authority and dominion over the kingdoms of this world. And that is why Christians can have nothing whatsoever to do with idols or even the appearance of idolatry. We had some discussions, our our mission team, when we went to Cuba because Cuba is a country which is immersed in what is known as Santeria, which is a, a syncretized religion between African spiritism and a shady version of Roman Catholicism. And so... About every third house that you would go to, you would walk in and you would see a cactus on the, on the roof of the house. And you think, that's strange. How did that get up there? And why would it be there? And so I asked one day, well, that's, that's the home of the spirit that the family pays homage to through offerings. Or you might walk into a living room and turn around and see in the corner an idol and an altar and offerings that have been presented to it. What do you do in such a situation if you're the evangelist? What do you do if you're the missionary? What, if you, what do you do if you're the light that has been sent to proclaim the good news in the midst of the darkness? Well, you've got to point it out. You've got to tell them that you cannot follow Christ and continue to set out offerings to these idols. You cannot follow Christ and think, keep that thing up on your roof or in the corner of your room. Those things have got to go or else you have no true faith. Repentance requires the forsaking of idols and the appearance of trusting in anything but Christ. And a wholehearted devotion, both invisible and visible, to Jesus as King and Lord and God. Idols are not innocuous. The little Buddhas in every oriental restaurant that I've been in in this town, that that have the little fruit and and the food set out, that's not cute. It's a stronghold. And it is very dangerous. Secondly, where idolatry reigns, so too will persecution. The book of Revelation will make plain that one of Satan's weapons in his war against the saints is to wed civil religion to political authority and to give the political authority the power to persecute those who will not participate in civil religion. Just read Revelation 13. This is what the beast and his image is all about. So it's not difficult to see how persecution erupted in Pergamum when the saints, including Antipas, refused to participate in the city's idolatry. Which means third... Even though idolatry and persecution go hand in hand, Jesus calls for faithfulness unto death. The persecution in Pergamum had turned deadly. He says, Antipas, my faithful witness, was put to death. Don't 
Don't allow your mind to conceive of Antipas as some mythical, faceless, early church martyr. When you think of Antipas, think of one of our church members because that's what he was. Think of one of our church members getting drug out of these doors and put to death in the city square. This was somebody's husband, somebody's father, somebody's brother, somebody's friend. He was a faithful saint of Jesus and Jesus was well pleased with him. But he was slain for his confession to Christ and his refusal to bow before the image and to worship the beast. Jesus says he was killed among you in your presence or at the very least with your full knowledge. He wasn't carted off one night and killed in secret. In fact, early church tradition says that he was burned alive in a heated bronze bull. But he was faithful unto death. And one of the reasons that Jesus sends this revelation to the church at Pergamum is to assure them that as soon as the body of Antipas succumbed to the flames, the faithful witness came to life and is reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So the church at Pergamum was a courageous church, resisting Satan's attacks refusing to worship the beast or to bow before his image, holding fast to Christ's name and boldly confessing their faith in Christ, even when to do so could cost them their very lives. But, though the saints in Pergamum had resisted Satan's attacks from without, persecution, by courageously confessing Christ even unto death, They had succumbed to Satan's attacks from within in the form of false teaching, cowardly compromising their testimony and their purity by tolerating those who flirted with idolatry and engaged in sexual immorality. Watch what happened. They resisted Satan's frontal assault upon their church when they refused to worship the beast and bow before his image. But they left the flank unguarded. And Satan crept in the back door and found his way in. They refused to bow and worship the beast. So Satan came in the back door and enticed them to bow before the false prophet instead. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's some question as to whether Jesus is referring to two groups here, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, or to one group, the Nicolaitans, who bear a striking similarity to Balaam and his false teaching. And I think that's the more accurate interpretation. There are a group, they're known as the Nicolaitans, and what they are doing resembles and is bearing the same fruit as what Balaam did in the midst of Israel back in the book of Numbers. You can read about it in Numbers 22 to 25. Balaam was a prophet, A pagan prophet for hire. 
Think of an uh, ancient fortune teller or a psychic or an astrologer. During the days of the wilderness generation of Israel, and Balak, the king of Moab, was afraid of Israel because of their, their size and their strength, and so he hired Balaam to curse Israel. He knew that Balaam had some power, as witch doctors often do, and he wanted him to wield this power against the people of Israel. Now, I'll leave it to you to read the whole story. It is hilariously entertaining. There is a talking donkey and an angel of the Lord with a sword ready to slay Balaam if he proceeds down the path. And how Balaam tried three times to curse the Israelites, but every time he opens his mouth, blessing comes out instead. And then God comes and fills his mouth and instead he actually ends up cursing Moab. But, through, but though Balaam could not curse the people of Israel, he did provide counsel to Balak as to how he could bring Israel under the Lord's judgment. In other words, though Satan could not curse the church himself, he had his prophet instruct the king as to how they could get Israel to bring the curse of God upon themselves. He told Balak to send the daughters of Moab into the camp of Israel and to seduce them, both sexually and religiously. And it worked. Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, record that while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore after the daughters of Moab. And these invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Sounds pretty familiar to what's going on in Pergamum, doesn't it? God cursed Israel with a plague that cost the lives of 24,000 people. So through the influence of a false prophet, Satan deceived the people of Israel into bowing before him and serving him. Well, evidently in the eyes of the Lord Jesus, something very similar was taking place in Pergamum as a result of the Nicolaitan heresy. These false teachers were telling the saints that they could name the name of Christ and participate in the worship of Christ and also participate in the pagan feasts and festivals that were so commonplace in the city, and yet still receive the everlasting inheritance of salvation and eternal life. In essence, the heresy was that you can live as the world lives, Monday through Saturday, and come into the church and worship Jesus on Sunday and Jesus is cool with that. Or even if he's a little upset, it just affects your rewards in heaven but surely not your everlasting salvation. And Jesus is writing to the church in Pergamum that says, that could not be more deadly wrong. By this heresy, the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, between light and darkness, is blurred. 
And it denies the necessity for the people of God to heed the call of God to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. See, these pagan celebrations were not merely civic celebrations. Rather, they took place in the temples of idols with food sacrificed to idols and often involved immoralities and perversions of every kind. These are the things that Jesus says in Revelation 2.6 that I hate. I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And if Jesus hates such things, those who follow Christ cannot participate in such things. You cannot follow Jesus and participate in the things that Jesus hates. Or else you are part and parcel of what Jesus hates. The Nicolaitans likely taught that because idols are nothing, they're just cute cultural conventions. To be a citizen of Pergamum is to participate in these festivals. We're just being missional here, right? Because idols are nothing and because grace is free and abundant, then it does not matter if the saints at Pergamum feast at the table of pagan idols. And engaged in pagan immoralities. But Jesus says it does matter. It matters greatly. So he issues a threat. Therefore repent. If not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Just as the Lord killed 24,000 Israelites... And slew Balaam the prophet with the sword. So Jesus says, I will come and make war against both the false prophets and those who follow them into idolatry and immorality. If you want a picture of what that might look like in actual practice, just let your eyes fall down to the very next letter and he spells it out in the church at Thyatira. So what does Jesus want from the church at Pergamum? What does repentance look like? Well, repentance means separation. It means separation from the world. No idols, no temples, no pagan feasts, no pagan rituals, no pagan immorality. None of that evil which the world considers good and normal and cultural. And it means separation from the false teachers and those who follow them. It means separation from practices that are worldly and separation from people in the church who are worldly, which means church discipline. See, in Numbers 25, there was a priest by the name of Phineas who it says was overcome with zeal for the Lord and he witnessed in the midst of all of this debauchery even after the, the, the evil had been made known to the congregation of Israel, he witnessed an Israelite continuing on in his unrepentant idolatry and immorality. He saw him walking into his tent with a Moabite woman. 
And so Phineas walked right in after them into the Israelites' bedchamber and ran them both through with the sword. Why is that important? Because God says specifically that it was this act that turned away the Lord's wrath from the congregation. This act of discipline turned away the Lord's wrath and stopped the plague. And I would say to us that in like manner, repentance for the church at Pergamum means exercising discipline upon the unrepentant. It doesn't mean passing out swords and starting to run people through. The church does not bear the power of the sword. We are not a geopolitical nation. But it does mean removing the wicked men and women from our midst. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A church that tolerates false teaching and shameless flirtations with the world in the form of idolatry and sexual immorality is a compromised church. It is a weak church and it will not overcome in these days of tribulation. So mark my words. No church can persevere through the tribulation of this age without practicing biblical church discipline when necessary. We withstand the assaults of Satan from without by means of the courageous confession of our faith in Christ even unto death. And we withstand the assaults of Satan from within by the courageous separation from the world and the courageous exercise of church discipline upon the people of the world who have infiltrated the church. This is what it meant for the church at Pergamum to conquer, to overcome Satan in the tribulation of this age, and this is what it means for First Baptist Nixa. So if you would hear what the Spirit says to the churches this morning, this is what you must hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's this mysterious language, but I think, I think we can decode it with a little effort. The hidden manna is a reference to the bread from heaven which God used to feed his people in the wilderness, a portion of which was stored or hidden inside the Ark of the Covenant as a memorial before God. And according to Jewish tradition, that Ark was taken away by the prophet Jeremiah during the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and was hidden somewhere in a mountain. And that it would remain there until Jeremiah returned at the coming of the Messiah to return the ark and its contents to the new Jerusalem temple. So hidden manna. But the manna always pointed beyond itself. In other words, it was, it was never just about bread and stomachs. It always pointed beyond itself, for Moses says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when Jesus came, he declared himself to be that bread from heaven which gives eternal life to all who will feed upon it, to all who will believe on him, John 6. So I take the hidden manna to be a reference 
to the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, which is fulfilled in Christ. And so what Jesus is promising to the church at Pergamum and to us, if we will overcome in this tribulation, he's promising us eternal life which comes from the bread of heaven who is Jesus himself. It's a promise of everlasting salvation. Secondly, the white stone is a little bit more difficult and it's garnered a number of different interpretations over the ages. The most plausible, in my opinion, is that it is a reference to a white stone to the Roman custom of awarding a white stone to the victor of an athletic contest. And that stone would be the admission ticket, as it were, into the victor's banquet. A banquet thrown in honor of those who conquered in that athletic contest. So the idea then would be that to the saints who overcome in this age of competition, this age of battle, this age of conflict, those who refuse to participate in the pagan feasts and resist the pagan immoralities, they will be granted admission to the victor's banquet, the feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the new name that is written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it seems to be a shorthand version of the same promise that is found in the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Revelation 3.12, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And in Revelation 19.12, It says of Jesus that his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And in Revelation 22, 3 and 4, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So what is this new name? Will you put all of these references together, and we see that the name which those who overcome will receive is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the name denotes ownership and fellowship, identification and intimacy. This is a promise to those who conquer, to those who overcome Satan and the tribulation of this age That they will be granted eternal and intimate fellowship with their God and with His Son. So intimate, in fact, that they will be identified by His name as a slave is called by the name of His Master. As a son is called by the name of His Father. In eternity, what is now invisible will then be made visible. And what is now shadowy will then become substance. And so those who are truly called by His name now, who endure through this age of tribulation and persevere in faith, will be so identified with Jesus for all of eternity, it will be as if they have His name inscribed on their forehead. Now we will flesh out the application of this message next week in Connect, but I want to end I want to end this morning by asking you a simple, direct, yet difficult question. 
And it's this. Do you have the courage to endure the tribulation? Do you have the courage to resist Satan's attacks and to stand firm in faith? Do you have the courage to openly confess Christ and to refuse to bow before the beast and worship his image, whatever form that takes in 21st century America, even if it costs you your profession, your prosperity, your possessions, your reputation, your friends, your family, your life? How much is that name worth to you? Do you have the courage to separate from the world and all of its evil and to go against the current when, when the entire current of the river of this world is sweeping down towards destruction? Do you have the courage to walk upstream in matters of faith and in matters of sexuality? Do you have the courage to separate from those who may seek to compromise this church's faith, this church's witness through false teaching or unrepentant sexual immorality? Enduring through the tribulation takes courage. The cowardly will not conquer. So the choice this morning is between courageous confession and cowardly compromise. And I would simply ask you, to which do you belong? So I invite you this morning in our response time to examine your heart and your life under the light of the Holy Spirit and discern which areas of your life you have allowed compromise with the world. And ask Him, For the grace and the courage and the strength to stand up and say, no more. No more will I be easy prey for Satan the roaring lion. Today I will answer the Lord's call to come out from among them and be separate. I will remove my hands from touching unclean things because I would rather have God as my Father and be called by His name as His Son than to have fellowship with the things of this world. And if you will say that this morning, then you too can begin to taste even now of the hidden manna. And it tastes like joy. And begin now to possess the white stone which guarantees your admission into the victor's banquet. And begin even now to be known by that name which will be the only name that is praised and glorified ages to come. Do you have courage or are you a coward?